Hey, good morning. Today's daf is daf vov. I'm going to go from the fourth line, Bomine. Um, today's shoes, Le'ilu Nishmas, Ben Zion, Ben Ze'ev, Avram Halevi. And also Le'ilu Nishmas, Yoshua Yitzchak, Ben Shol Ruven Halevi. May the Neshamas have an aliyah. Um, so yesterday we discussed, um, it was specifically regarding Chomets. We mentioned that if you... If you respond, if a non-Jew leaves chometz in your house and you're responsible for it, we consider it as if it's yours to a degree, and therefore you would have to get rid of it. Um, we did touch on a more complicated and a, it's actually quite a broad, a big discussion, but it comes, it's more relevant to uh, to Chosh and Mishpat, to uh, monetary laws. Again, is something where, which causes which will trigger a monetary obligation as if it's as if it's already a monetary obligation as if it's yours but not, but back to what we were discussing this concept of if someone has rights in something is it partially theirs so he says boy may they asked Rava regarding a behemoth sarnunya what's a behemoth sarnunya so that's they used to what, a tax on the flock the king or the government had the right to collect a tenth, Rashi brings a tenth of every, of all the newborn, uh, used to take master on all your newborn uh, animals. And what about a Bechor? Because a Bechor, remember that's a firstborn animal, um, if it's, obviously if it's owned fully by a Jew, well then it goes to the Kohen as a sacrifice. Nowadays that we can't bring it as a sacrifice, we, we wait for it to get a moon, but it goes to the Kohen. But a Bechor that is dual owned, by in a, owned in partnership by a Jew and a non-Jew, what's the Halacha? It's not, a, it doesn't have the status of a Bechor and the owner can keep it. So we want to know, so that's what the question the Gemara is going to ask is, this animal where theoretically the non-Jewish, the king, has a right in it, does that, is that considered a partnership and therefore it's exempt from a Bukhar? Or is it, does it, is it, is, it does, he doesn't really have a, how do we view this right that he has in it? So, boy, my name Rava Bahamas Anunya, they asked Rava about these animals which were subject to this tax. Chayeves Bebukhara. Or are you chayv in a bechor or not? So call Says I'm not asking in a case where you could give the king money, you could pay tax instead of giving him the actual animal. I'm not asking. Obviously, you chayv there. Okay, why? Because he doesn't have any hold on your animal. Because really, all that's going to happen is. You're going to pay him. So it's as if he doesn't have a right in your animal. I'm specifically asking where you can't get rid of the obligation with money. Are you literally going to have to give um, the tax man 10% of your actual animals? Is my, what's the halacha? Do we say there, since theoretically you might have to give him this animal, it's like an animal owned in partnership, and therefore it's not chayev in Bechor? Or would we say, no, since he hasn't yet taken it, it's completely yours, and only when the tax man comes around, well then you'll have to say, well that's a Bechor, I'll give you a different one. So what did Rava answer? Omaluhu Patura, he says that you exempt
It doesn't have the status of Bukhar. But we have a Bryser which says you're liable. That's where you could pay money instead. So in this first version, if when the king comes, the tax man comes to collect his 10% of this flock, if you could pay him money, then it's as if he's never really had rights in the animals. And obviously the animals that are born as Bukharas would be Chav as Bukhar. If, however, when the tax man comes, you're going to have to actually give him animals, well then it's as if he does have a hand in the flock, Rashi says, it would be animals owned in partnership with a non-Jew, and you would not be chayav in a Bechor. Eketa Omri, there's a different version. Rava says, an animal that's subject to this tax is exempt from Bechor. Even though you could give money. Again, the tax man comes around and he says, I'm here to collect my 10% of your flock. You can pull out your wallet and give him cash. Still, in that case, sorry, so you might think that he has, you might think there it says if he doesn't have a share in your flock, because you're going to really just give him cash instead of giving him your animal, and therefore it would be chav in a bachor. Rava comes along and says you potter from a bachor even though you could give him cash. What's the reason? Because until you've actually paid the non-Jew, the tax collector, the cash, he does have a right in your herd, and therefore it's as if it's owned in partnership. Um, yeah. So that's regarding an animal that you owe a tax on. What about Isas Arnunya, the dough tax? So this is again, it seems many would pay it as grain, if I understood Rashi correctly, but it could also sometimes you'd separate dough as a tax. Now we're touching on what halacha is relevant to dough is um, challah. We know that when you're baking dough, when you're kneading dough, you're obligated to separate some of that dough for the kohen. But if it's dough that you own in partnership with a non-Jew, you're not obligated to give it to the kohen. So again, we're asking very similar question, uh, basically the same question as above. By the fact that the non-Jew has rights to come and collect his tax, do we view it as if it's owned in partnership? And therefore you would not be chayav in chala, in separating some of the dough for the coin? Or is it considered your dough? And therefore you are separ- have to separate chala, and the non-Jew will come and separate, get his share, or collect his tax. So it's The dough of Arnunya, you're liable in chala. And this would be even in a case where you can't pay money. Now, this is very interesting. What if we said we've taken it to the extreme case where you should be exempt from chalawa? This is when you're baking, you have to separate a 10% tax from your dough. And you have to give the non-Jew 10% of your dough. You have to give the governor 10%. The tax, you have to give the tax collector 10%. Now, what's he coming to collect? He's going to come to your house, he's going to knock on the door, and you're going to have to take from the batch of dough you made, you're going to have to take 10% and give it to, give it to the tax collector. Now, that, that sounds very much like he's a partner, he has a hand in your dough. You can't tell me that that's dough that's owned uniquely by a Jew. So that's what the Gemara asks. He says, my timer, why should you be still chayv in chala? Why should you 
have to separate challah. It should be dough that's considered owned by you and the non-Jew. You're going to have to take 10% of that dough and give it to the tax collector. So why should you be having challah? So the Gemara answers, Bahama is like challah, is like challah. An animal everyone knows about and knows that the tax collector comes and takes some. Dough is not so well known. I went last that people, no one knows when you're really baking or not. I was thinking about it. I don't know how the tax collector even manages to claim tax on this, to collect his tax, because he doesn't know when you're baking. Maybe with the Jews it's easy because he goes early Friday morning and he catches them baking dough. But in general, you don't know when people are making dough. Um... And therefore, sorry, so what does this color, this voice, it's well-known, make a difference? Is when you don't separate this animal as a Bukhar, everyone will know because it's the tax collector, it's outside, it's by your flock, and everyone will know that he took, that he's taken his share. But by dough, it's not so well-known that the tax collector came or took from the dough. No one even knew you were baking. So therefore, when you don't, um, when you don't sep- separate challah, it looks like you're eating dough that didn't have challah separated. So again, it's not Torah, it's Terabonin, but it's because it looks like you're eating from bread or dough that had, that challah wasn't separated. Okay, back to chomets and non-Jews with chomets. Again, you you have your house and your maid brings in chomets or something like that. What do we do? So, If a non-Jew walks into your courtyard carrying bread, you don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to kick him out or say or burn it. So again, when your maid went, goes shopping on Pesach and she brings bread, goes and buys her own bread, and even if she brings it into your garden, into your house, you don't have to get rid of it. However, if they give it to you to keep, to watch for them, then you would be obligated to destroy it. However, if you designate a place in your house. You say, okay, you want to keep your chomets, you keep it in the corner of that room or you keep it in the cupboard there. Something like that. You you designate them a place. Um, you don't have to destroy it. As it says, it shall not be found. Okay, we'll come back to what this prosok is telling us. The Gomorrah is going to ask, but what's it based on? So the runs, what's this discussion based on? So just what is, so here we're discussing where a non-Jew comes and asks you to watch his bread for him. So we made the distinction as if you say Yeshua, then you have to get, when it's Pesach, or if now it's Pesach, you'd have to get rid of it. And that is because it's very similar to where you say, and yeah, and however, if you designate a place Really what you've done is you said, I don't really want to be responsible for it. I don't want to. And therefore you can put it in the cupboard over there. It's like it's your cupboard and whatever happens, happens. Again, unlike where he comes to you and he says, please watch my bread for me, watch my whiskey for me. And you're like, yeah, sure. Then you're accepting upon yourself responsibility to look after it. But if you say, no, no, please put it in. You can have that cupboard over there or that corner of the room over there is yours. You put your bread there then you're not accepting responsibility. And therefore, if you designated a place for him, you would not have to destroy the Chomets. 
Now, and we said the pasuk is loy say You don't have to destroy the chometz because it says loy say So the Gemara asks, my kaoma, that doesn't make sense. Loy say chometz shall not be found in your possession. Sounds like it's obligating you to destroy chometz that you find in your house, even if it's not yours. And you bring in this pasuk of loy say to tell me that if it's a non-Jew's chometz that he put in your house and you designated a place. You don't have to destroy it. Sounds like it's coming for the opposite. So Amar Papa Arisha Koi Bahaki Koma Ravas Rav Papa says it's going on the first point and this is how you read it. If Kido if the non Jew gives you his chomets to watch, you're obligated to destroy it. Shinemar as it says, Loyimotse, Chomet shall not be found in your house. Loyimotse is coming to include even chomets that belongs to a non Jew that you're responsible for. Ravashi Omar Ravashi says Ravashi says it's actually going on the last clause. Says Vahachi Kamar, and this is how you read the Pasuk. He says, If you designate a place in your house for the non Jew to keep his chomet, you're not obligated to burn it. Why? Shinemar as the Pasuk says, You're not allowed to find it in your house. This isn't really your house. The Nochriki when the non comes and puts his chomets there or takes it out, it's like his chomets. Okay, before we carry on on the thing, this is kind of, I think, similar to when we sell chomets. We kind of designate a cupboard. don't know, you can discuss whether you have to do this or not, but you designate a cupboard that you put all your chomets in and that's the cupboard for the non-Jew whose chomets you got in your house. Because remember, we, you've sold all your chomets. If that's the case, um, um, oh, yeah, sorry. So, so the non-Jew, so when the non-Jew comes to access the Chomets, it's really his house, not your house. How does that help? Because again, the Pasuk says, You're not allowed to find chomets in your house. And we did. We extended that to any chomets that you're responsible for, even if you don't own it. Um, comes along um, the Bryce and, and clarifies this for us and tells us that where it is designated for him, there's an area designated for him regarding these halachas, it's as if it's his house. So it's not fun. You know, it's not that you found chometz in your house; it's you found chometz in his house. Non-Jews are allowed to have chometz. Now the Gemara is going to challenge this. He says, is kanya. You telling me that if you rent out an area in your house, it says if he's the owner. It's kanya. Schirus affects the acquisition. It says if he's the owner. He says vahatnan. But we learnt in a Mishnah. Even according to the opinion that you are allowed to rent a house to a non-Jew. There's a whole discussion, uh, what Masechta was it? In, in Masechta Avodah Zorah, I think it's the first parak there, whether you're actually even allowed to rent a house to a non-Jew. But even according to the opinion or in the places where you are allowed to rent a house to a non-Jew, you're not allowed to rent it as a residential property because you'll bring his avoid Zora there. Ah, you rent it for him to stay there. He's going to want to have his uh, idols, etc. there. You can rent it to him for storage or woodshed or something like that. But you can't re- rent it to him for um, residential. Now, the, now what, why? What's the problem? Because you're not allowed to let idols into your house. 
Okay, so therefore, you're not allowed to rent property to a non-Jew because he'll bring idols into it. Now he says, these archetypes of the Kanya, if renting out property was an effective Kenyan, it was like he's the owner, when he brings in this idol, he's bringing it into his own house. That's basically what we said by Chomet. We said when the non-Jew brings, if you give the non-Jew a cupboard in your house to keep his Chomet, when he puts Chomet there or takes it out, it's his house that he's putting Chomets there or taking it out. But that doesn't line up with this thing of Avodah because then when he, you rent your house to the non-Jew to stay and he brings his idol in, he's bringing it into his house, not your house. So you must say that's Chiros Lo Kanya. That renting out the property is not a good acquisition. I, it's your house that you rented to the non-Jew and therefore you're not allowed to rent it in a scenario where he'll bring an idol into it. But then we stuck, we should say the same thing by Chomet. Just because you've designated and said you can use that cupboard, it's still your cupboard and your, so therefore it's Chomet that you're responsible for. So the Gemara answers, no, shiny hacha. Bachomets is different. It uses the phrase lo yimotze. What it means, motzu means not it doesn't necessarily mean found in your property. It means accessible. Um, um, accessible, available. Uh, let me just see where did I, uh, yeah, accessible, available. And that's what the problem is. So, it's, uh, therefore, with Chomet, there's actually this leniency. But the fact that you've designated a place for him in your house, you've kind of made it his Chomet's inaccessible to you or unavailable to you because it is. And he's responsible for it. And therefore, you get out of the problem of Lo Yimotze, finding Chomet's in your property. However, in general, we would say that's Chiros Lo That if you rent out a house to a non-Jew, You've got to be careful that they're not going to be bringing in idols because even though they rented it, it's still considered your house. Um, let me just ask you an interesting practical question that this touches on. What happens if you're an insurer and you insure a non-Jew's chomets? Right, so in a way, you are responsible for the chomets. And as we said, when you're responsible for the chomets, then it's a problem. So what would you say? Are you allowed to insure... And non-Jews comments, let's not discuss the Jews comments because in general we're quite strict. We say like all Jews comments is kind of owned by, if, if it's in your property or under your jurisdiction, you're responsible for it. So let's discuss the non-Jews comments. So based on the surface from what we've said, as soon as you're responsible for the comments, there's a degree to consider it yours and you'd have to destroy it. And therefore you could not insure a non-Jews comments. But there is a Morgan Avram which says, again, this is a big discussion, but the Morgan Avram seems to say that this is only where it's on your property and it's like it's yours and you're responsible for it. But where the non-Jews actually is actually looking after it, I, his, it's his, but you've just insured it, you're the insurance company, then it's not such an issue because it's he's the one looking after it, he's the one watching it, it's just you. He's ensured that if something happens to it. But again, if he would give it to you to watch, then it would be a problem. Okay, Omar Rav Yudah, Omar Rav. Rav Yudah said, new point. Rav Yudah said in the name of Rav, HaMoytzi Chomets Beveis of Yom Tov. What happens if you find Chomets in your house on Yom Tov? I first, I, you checked your house, you did Bedikas Chomets, Yom Tov morning, something happened, and you realized, you found, you checked somewhere that you didn't expect or forgot to check, and you find Chomets there.
Now let's assume that you're not over the issue of um, Yeah, the problem is you're not allowed to move the chomets because the chomets is mukta. Remember on Shabbos and Yom Tov, if there's something you can't use, it's mukta. And Rashi points out, obviously you wouldn't necessarily transgress, you're not allowed to see chomets because you already did bittel. Remember we said, if you do, um, we'll, we'll actually we'll see it on today's daf, but we mentioned it at the beginning of the Masechta, you always have to do bittel, you always have to nullify the chomets, say it's like... A, it's like uh, ash in my mind. It's like ash and dust. And therefore, you don't transgress Balira. You don't transgress seeing Chomets that is yours. Because it's not yours. You were mevatel it. However, there's still another danger that you might accidentally eat it. So therefore, it says, You turn a kli upside down over it. If it's chomets belonging to the temple, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to turn a kli over it. My timer, what's the reason? You used to separating yourself from it. If you have some holy um, bread belonging to temple property, you used to not touching that bread because obviously if you eat it, it's, uh, what's it? it's getting benefit from temple property. So you're very careful not to get benefit. And that you used to all year round. All year round, whenever you have chomets in your uh, bread belonging to the base, I mean, that you care for it. The difficulty on Pesach, and this is an importance for it to keep in mind, this is one of the reasons we're so strict with chomets, is every day you eat chomets, and you eat it without thinking. You know, you go to the cupboard looking for a snack, you take out some crackers. You're hungry, you, make, you take out some bread. Every meal you're having bread, you're always having bread and you're not thinking about it. So on Pesach, your natural reaction, you see a nice uh, biscuit or something, you'll take it and eat it. However, um, therefore, that's lobedilinishinai. But if it's something like hegdesh, like temple property, well, the whole year you used to being careful from it so you won't come to eat it. Um, you won't come to eat it and therefore you don't have to put a kli over it. For Amr Abiyur Amarav, Nochri, if you have chomets of a nochri in your house, you have to put up a partition of ten fochim around it, mishum heker, to make it clear. But if it's you don't need A person is very careful with it. Um, Rashi points out that even that it's not good, in this case it's not good enough to just turn a kli over. Is firstly because on Erev Yom Tov, when you have this non-Jews comments in your house, you can build a partition, you can set up a partition. We learned in Eruvin, you're not allowed to set, set up a partition on Yom Tov. So that's why on Yom Tov, you could turn a Kli over. Also on Yom Tov, when you're turning the Kli over, you're turning it over just because you can't burn it then. Because you can't burn something that, that adds nothing to the Yom Tov. So you can't burn it then, so you're turning the Kli over just till, that, till Motzei Yom Tov, till that night. But here, with this non-Jews chomets, if you turn a kli over it for the whole of Pesach, there's a good chance you might need that kli. Or someone's going to come and uncover it and eat it. So therefore, you have to put up, you have to do this more efficient, and more, uh, go to greater length and put a machitza around it. Om Rav Yehuda, my Rav, Rav Yehuda is the name of Rav. Hamafrish v'yotze b'shayor ha'kodem shloishim yom, ein zokik levayr. If you're leaving on a journey, a shayor means a long journey, not planning on coming back. If it's before 30 days before Pesach, you don't have to destroy your chomets. However, if it's within 30 days, then you do have to destroy it. Zokuk Levar, you have to destroy your chomets before you leave. Once it's within 30 days, 
you have to, it's, and you have to start taking the regal, you have to start taking the festival, Pesach, into account. And therefore, any chomets, that's when the obligation to start burning your chomets would start coming into effect and you have to take it into account. And therefore, you would have to destroy it. If you're leaving, even though you're leaving on a journey, you're going to Eretz Yisrael for the next two months for Pesach and you know that it's because of uh, Corona, you're going to be in isolation for a long time. So you want to make to take full benefit. So you're leaving um, Rosh Chodesh Nisan and you're going to be there for ages. Since the obligation to burn chomets has already started to kick in, you're obligated to uh, to destroy it. If, however, it's before 30 days, even though it's Chomets that is yours, it's inaccessible. Why? Because you're going to be overseas. You're going to be in Eretz Israel or somewhere else, and the Chomets is in your house. It's inaccessible. And we're going to learn, this is how the Ran explains it, we're going to learn later on in the later on that if you have Chomets that's totally inaccessible, it's as if it's not yours, and you don't transgress having Chomets. So, so to you, if you've gone on a long journey... Even, and you leave within 30 days of, well, well, sorry, longer than 30 days before Pesach. You don't have to destroy your chomets because it will be inaccessible. It says, Abaya says, this that we say within 30 days you have to destroy the chomets. It's three weeks before Pesach. And you have to destroy the chomets. He says, that's where you plan on returning on Pesach. But if you don't plan on returning, you don't have to destroy it. So, Amalei Rava, V'yidata Laksa, Rafidim Rosh Hashanah Nami. Rava says, no. If your intent is to return it, even if you're leaving from Rosh Chodesh, you'd have to, from Rosh Hashanah, you'd have to destroy it. Six months before Pesach, but you plan on coming back on Pesach, you'd have to destroy your Chomets before you leave, because that's Chomets that's accessible, that will be accessible. Therefore, Rava says this that we that the Brisa taught that sorry that Omar Abiyuda said in the name of Rav that if you're leaving before thirty days, you don't have to destroy the chometz. That's where you have where your intent is to not return. Abal data laksor if your intent is if you do plan on returning, on Pesach, even from Rosh Hashanah, you're obligated to destroy it. And Rav is going according to his general uh, opinion. says, If someone makes his house into a storehouse, I, what does that mean? Rashi explains, you fill your, you got chomets in your house, but you fill your house with stuff. You pack it to the top with wood. So now the chomets buried under a few tons of uh, odds and ends and stuff. Um, says, If it's with before 30 days of Pesach, you don't have to destroy the chomets first. If it's you filling up your house within 30 days of Pesach, you have to destroy the chomets. He says, however, and this if, however, even if it's before 30 days, but you plan on emptying out the store, the, the house, the room, before the end of Pesach, then you would have to destroy it. Even if it's long before 30 days. Okay, just before we go on, so, um, yeah, if, uh, if it's 30 days, um, 
This way, so so if you're leaving, let's say you're going you're going away for Pesach, you're going on one of these. Uh, don't know if they'll be doing them this year, but they became quite popular that people go away for Pesach, and then you go on one of these retreats. Do you have to search search your house and do Bir Chomet? So the answer is yes. If you're leaving within thirty days, you have to. The question when you don't have to is when you're leaving because, and that the reason is because the obligation to destroy Chomets has already started to set in. Because as we said, that sets in from 30 days before Pesach. However, if you're leaving before 30 days and you don't plan on coming back for Pesach, then you would not have to destroy it. Okay, it says, Honey, I to say, what's the purpose of these 30 days? Where do we get 30 days from? So Gretanya, as we learned in Hebrews, the obligation to start discussing the laws of Pesach and expounding the rules of Pesach must be from 30 days before Pesach. I don't know, um, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, I Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel says, two weeks, not 30 days, just two weeks. My timer, what's the reason? The Tanakama, my timer, the Tanakama, where does the Tanakama get this of 30 days? Moshe was standing on Pesach Rishon and discussing Pesach Shani. Now remember, Pesach Rishon is one month before Pesach Shani. Where do we see this? B'nai Israel were making the Pesach on their right time, either the 14th of Nisan. And it's written in that same parasha. There were people who were Tomei and they wanted to know how can we do the Koban Pesach so Moshe told them about. Pesach Shani. So what do we see? You start learning about the laws of Pesach 30 days before Pesach. And therefore that's where that's clearly where the obligation to start taking Pesach into consideration is from 30 days before and that's why the obligation to start destroying your Chomets, getting rid of your Chomets is starting to set in and therefore if you're going away within 30 days you would have to destroy your Chomets get rid of your Chomets. Um... Yeah, let's just see Rabbi Shimon and then we'll discuss it a bit further. Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, Omer Rabbi, Omer, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, oh, what a, doesn't he said two weeks, not 30 days. He says, No, it's not because he had an obligation to start teaching 30 days in advance. It's because he was already discussing Pesach. So he finished discussing, he carried all the laws of Pesach, even Pesach Shemi. He says, oh, so my time at the Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, where does Rabbi Shimon Gamliel learn out that you only have to start discussing or the obligation of Pesach sets in two weeks before? Sharei Moshe, Omer B'Rosh Chodesh, Mazir ala Pesach, because Moshe was standing on Rosh Chodesh and he's taught B'nai Israel about Pesach. Now, remember, what date is Pesach? On the 15th, 14th and 15th of Nisan. So, two weeks. It's Rosh Chodesh is exactly two weeks before. Where do we see this? Shinemar is the Pesach. This month will be Rosh Chodesh. Moshe went and told Ben Israel, this will be Rosh Chodesh. And he started telling them that on the 10th of the month, you must collect a... You must take a, a sheep, etc., for your Korban Pesach, and he carried on to teach them about Korban Pesach. So, what do we see? From Rosh Chodesh, he started teaching them about Pesach. He says, Where do you see that it was Rosh Chodesh? Maybe it was already on the 4th or the 5th of the month. I, all, Moshe, all Moshe told him is, This month is the first month, 
And on the 10th of Nisan, I want you to start, I want you to get your, you must start preparing for Pesach. Maybe he wasn't on Rosh Chodesh and it was two weeks before. Maybe it was already the fifth of the month and we only ten days before, something like that. So, Rabbi Barsimi says, uh, in the name of Ravina, it's from the following place. Moshe was standing on the, in Midbar Sinai, in the second year from when they left Egypt, on the first month, and it says Ben Israel made their Pesach in the right time. Oh, so again, who says that when it says Moshe was standing on the first month, that he was standing on the Rosh Chodesh of the first month, Rosh Chodesh of Nisan? Maybe he was, maybe it was the fourth or the fifth of Nisan. It's no, it's Midbar Midbar. It says in this pasuk that when Moshe started telling them about Pesach, Midbar Sinai. and it's written. This is at the beginning of Sefer Vayikra of Bamidbar. Says he was standing. Moshe was standing in Midbar Sinai. On the Rosh Chodesh, Be'echot L'Chodesh Hashaini. It says, Ma'ala Halem Barosh Chodesh, just as over there it's Rosh Chodesh. When it says, in Midbar Sinai, it's talking about on Rosh Chodesh, Afkan Barosh Chodesh. So to hear where it says, he was standing in Midbar Sinai, it's talking about Rosh Chodesh. So that's the source. Rabbi Shimon brings the source that we see Moshe was standing on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, telling B'nai Israel about the Korban Pesach, about Pesach, and therefore we see two weeks. Okay, so we have this discussion. We generally follow the opinion, as we saw in the Halacha, that it's for 30 days before. So just a few interesting things. Is this any festival or specifically Pesach? Why should Pesach be different? I this that you have to start discussing Pesach 30, 30 days before. Is that specifically Pesach? Or is it even Sukkot, even Hanukkah, maybe Rosh Hashanah? This that we say you should start getting ready for the festival 30 days before. Is it limited to Pesach? And if you do want to say it's limited to Pesach, why should Pesach be different? So obviously that is a discussion. But the one, um, the one point, the reason to say Pesach is different because Pesach has so many extra halachas. There's the laws of the Korban Pesach. You have to start getting your Korban ready, thinking about that, getting um, etc. All the laws of the Korban and eating the Korban Pesach, the Seder not. And not only that, there are many, many laws to do with chomets and matzah. What sort of chomets do you have to burn? What can you do with the chomets? Do you have to burn? Uh, how do you get rid of chomets? There's so many halachas. Therefore, maybe specifically by Pesach, you have to start getting ready 30 months, uh, 30 days before, but not necessarily other festivals. Or on the other hand, all festivals have their halachas and they all have their unique factors. And if you want to be properly prepared for the festival, you should start getting ready. Whether it's through Shailin Vidorshin, learning the halachas and learning about them. Um, and that's, uh, that's the goal of this uh, point. I think it's important, you know, something uh, important to keep in the back of your mind is you can't compare. I don't know if you have it. When you start preparing, you start learning a little bit about the festival in advance. Uh, whether it's the halachas or whether it's... Uh, you know, what does Pesach represent? 
what's special about the Seder night, what does Golos Mitzrayim mean to me, all these different Roshas and Alochas that you learn about Pesach will make your whole Pesach a totally different and more meaningful festival. So too with Sukkot. If you start learning about Sukkot and what the Sukkot represents and what does the Lulav represent and Roshas on Sukkot and Halochas of Sukkot and Sukkot, then when you come into the festival it will be a much more meaningful, much more special experience. And we know with Rosh Hashanah, there it's kind of built in from already from Elul, which is 30 days before Rosh Hashanah. We start blowing the shofar. We start getting ourselves emotionally in the right place. And that's a, I think that's just something important to keep in mind. Um, it makes it much more special if you prepare for the festival, not just by cleaning your house, not just by buying your lulav, not just by building your sukkah, not just by buying a new shirt, but by actually learning about it and uh, um, preparing for the festival by learning about it, the halachas and the principles that that festival is imparting. Um, Chanukah is coming up in the next few days. So yeah, take out or find a book on Chanukah, find a book with the halachas of Chanukah and start learning about it. And you'll see when Chanukah comes, it'll be much more ready and it will be much more meaningful. Um, That's... uh, yeah, that's one point on Shualim Vedorshin. That's this concept of Shualim Vedorshin. Behilchas HaPesach, Koinim HaPesach, Shloshim Yom. We start discussing, asking questions and learning about the laws of Pesach 30 days before Pesach. Um, yeah, let's go on. It says, now we're going to mention a, a, sli- uh, a side point that comes up out of the sugya. Okay, so we mentioned... Um, we mentioned two psukim. The one posuk was right by the beginning of Sefer Bamidba where it discusses B'nai Israel being counted. That's the start of Sefer Bamidba, B'nai Israel being counted. And then a few prokim later, we brought the discussion to do with Pesach. Now that's actually out of order because B'nai Israel were counted in the second month. I, if I remember correctly, B'nai Israel were counted in Iyar. Let's check I'm getting it right. Yeah, were counted in the second month, whereas Pesach is the month before. So the Gemara wants to address this point that it's out of order. It says, It should have first um, spelt out what happened in the first month. I had the discussion to do with the Pesach. And then it should have mentioned what happened... um, in the second month, I counting Bnei Israel. Why is it out of order? So Omar Amenasha Bar Tachlifa Mishmei Derav Rav Nasha Bar Tachlifa says in the name of Rav Zois Omeres Ein Muktam Umeucha BeTorah. This is teaching us that there's no order in the Torah. I there is not a chronological order. There's a famous Machlokes Rishonim. We don't have time to go into it now. How far we take this Ein Muktam Umeucha LeTorah that there's no order in the Torah. Sometimes like Rashi and Ramban will argue on the order of events. Like the Yisrael come before Matan Torah or after Matan Torah, etc. They'll argue about the order of events because Ein Muktam the Torah, there's no chronological order in the Torah. And that's why it's fine. We can start Sefer by Midbar discussing the counting, which was in the second month. And then a few prokim later, we go back to the month before when they were discussing Koban Pesach. So Omar Omran Ella betray in Yone. Rav Papa says this is specifically in two different topics. 
אבל באחד עניון, אבל אם זה one topic, מי דה מוקדם מוקדם, מי דה מאוחר מאוחר. What is earlier discussed in that פסוק is specifically earlier, and what is earlier and what is later is later. Why does he say to Eloi, We know we have a concept of expounding psukim if you have a klal, um, if you have a klalu prat. What does that? If you have a general point and then specifics. What do you do? You follow the specifics. You say it only applies in those cases. So for example, um, Rashi gives an example. Let me just find it. Oh, no, he doesn't bring an example, but that's a klalu practice. You have a general principle and then you have specifics. You only follow the specifics. But if you tell me there's no order in the chumash, then who says it's a klalu prat? Maybe it's a prat or klal. And so the two prat, prat for klal, if you have specifics and then a klal, that's coming to include more things. It says, now it's a klal moisif ala prat. We say that the klal adds to the prat. Dilma klalu pratu. Maybe it's actually a klalu prat. If you're telling me that in one topic there's no order, well then, how do I know what's a klalu prat and what's a klalu, what's a prat klal? How do I know if the, if the details were said first or if the general thing was said first? I don't know what Hashem told Moshe because it's written all out of order. So therefore you have to say that in one topic it's in order. Granted, when it's changing between subjects, counting Pesach, it's counting the Jews, Pesach, etc., it's not necessarily in chronological order. In one topic, you have to assume it's exactly as Hashem told Moshe. Well, if that's the case, why not in two matters? You also run into trouble. According to the opinion that, no, when you have the Klalu Prat, they have to be right next to each other. If there's a discussion or a posuk or something between them, then you don't learn the Klalu Prat. Okay, so that's fine. If you have two topics that are not in order, it's not going to mess you up with the Klalu Prat because you anyway couldn't learn a Klalu Prat between two different topics. But according to the opinion that, no, you can learn a Klalu Prat even if the general and the specifics are not right next to each other. Michael Ameymar. If you, even with two topics, if it's out of order, then how do you know whether it's supposed to be a klalu prat or a prat or klal? So the Gemara says, no, I feel the man to Omar, danin, hani mili b'chadin yona, ava betrein yona, ain danin. He says, no, this that you can learn a klalu prat that are far from each other is only in one topic. But if it's two topics, you cannot learn a klalu prat that is far from each other. Okay, so that's an interesting discussion on this concept of the Torah is not in chronological order. We do say, however, each topic in its own right is in in its is in correct the correct order. Omar Rav Yudah, Rav Rav Yudah said, name of Rav. Even if you do bedikah, you have to do bittul. And what do we say? When you search and check your chometz and you destroy it, there's not going to be any chometz in your house. So why should you still have to do bitul chometz? Why should you have to say any chometz? And this Rashi points out, this is what we say. We do it immediately after doing bedikah. We say, I don't know if you remember the Aramaic, but it's called chamir v'chamir de'isa b'shusi. Any chometz that I have, leaven that I have in my house, I view it as if it's dust of the earth. Remember that phrase, that paragraph you say after doing B'dikah's Chomets and after doing? So we do Bittal. But why? What's the, what does it achieve? So he says, Maybe it's because of the crumbs. Right? When you went looking through your house for Pesach, you don't have to worry about crumbs for Chomets. When you go looking through your house for Chomets, you don't have to worry about crumbs. They're insignificant. 
I mean, interesting enough, we're so careful to get out the tiniest grain of chomets from a crack anywhere. Strictly speaking, if it's smaller than a kazais or so, you don't have to worry about it. Okay, the other issues, if it could fall in your food or something like that, but in general, you don't have to worry about tiny pieces of chomets, they're insignificant. So that can't be why you have to still do bittle. No, maybe by the fact that these little crumbs are safe, because you locked your front door at night, you give them... I a very interesting Svara. Granted, you theoretically don't care about the crumbs, but you keep them safe at night by locking your front door. So maybe they, that gives them significance. So it says, no. Before you go. On. So um, what we're going to discuss now is regarding Maser and Gezel. If you have stuff in your field that you don't care about, well, then obviously you don't have to separate Maser on it. And also, if someone would take it, they would not transgress Gezel. Now we're going to discuss basically the same thing. What happens if you have something in your field that you care about, for example, grapes, and there's these figs that have been on the tree, uh, that have been on the trees for too long. They're never going to ripen properly. They're, I don't know what the word is. They're duds. I don't know if there's a more. There's probably a more professional word. Um, but they're these figs that aren't going to ever ripen properly. You don't care about them. So by the fact that you guard the grapes. And the figs are automatically guarded. Does that give them significance? So let's see. Um, if they're these ends of season dates, but you protect your field because of the grapes that are in it. So if it's the end of the grapes, either grapes that are left on the vine, they're not good, you don't care about them, but you're guarding your field because of the squash and the gourds that are growing in it. If you know that, if the owner was particular about them, he wants these ends of figs or these figs or these grapes, even though they're not very good quality. You're not allowed to steal them. And if you steal them, if you take them, you transgress theft. And the owner, when he picks them, he has to separate Maser. If the owner doesn't care about them, you can take them. There's no problem of Gezel. And they're exempt from Maser. But what do we see from there? Just because something's guarded, it doesn't give it significance if you don't care about it. So, so to in your house, just because you lock your front door, doesn't make everything in your house valuable and significant. The crumbs on the floor don't answer just because they're safe they're very safe they've got a front door a front gate a security alarm they're very safe but you still don't care about them so they still don't have significance so you can't come along and say when Rabbi Huda said in the name of Rab that once if you do Badika you still have to do Bittal you can't say it's for the crumbs because the crumbs are insignificant and there would be no problem of those crumbs lying around on Chomet so Omar Rav Rav says Rav says no it's exactly in case you find a nice uh, piece of bread or cookie or something like that and you actually want it. Uh, you did bedicka, and we can assume that you cleared your house but maybe you forgot one shelf in the cupboard or you forgot one of the rooms and when you see this delicious loaf of bread um, and you've been craving bread for the last three days you actually think, oh, I want it. And at that moment, you transgress having seeing and having comets in your possession. Again, when you did the bedikah and you never ever found it, that's fine because your bedikah gives it a status of there's no comets in your possession, and that's fine. But if you subsequently find comets on Pesach and a significant 
piece of chametz, well then you might actually decide, oh, I like that. And in that moment, you transgress having chametz in your possession. So you do bittle, you nullify, you say, any chametz that's in my possession is like dust of the earth. And then what happens to the chametz? Then even if you find chametz, it's what we learned earlier, lo you're not allowed to see your chametz, this is not your chometz, you were mevatel it. It's like nothing to you. And therefore you wouldn't transgress. Okay, the discussion ca- carries on a bit, but I think we'll leave it there for today. Have a very good Shabbos.